In this episode of Shaping the Future, I am talking to Wall Street energy analyst Dan Dicker about his new book, Turning Oil Green, A Market-Based Path to Renewables. Dan's book gives us a lot of fascinating insights into how the oil markets work and how we should use the existing infrastructure of the markets to literally turn oil green. Like many of the complexities around the climate crisis, pathways to progress often appear counterintuitive at the outset. What I found revelatory in Dan's perspective is that collapsing the oil price can destabilize nations, increase poverty, and potentially derail the uptake of renewables in parts of the world where energy demand is only ever going to rise. One of the key issues around the emissions reduction and the transition to clean energy is the sheer scale of the challenge ahead. To successfully transform our world, we must maximize our ability to meet these scales of enormity. Could Dan's approach set out in this book get us some of the way there? We surely cannot, at this point, take anything off the table. The book is available from Amazon, and I've placed a link in the description below. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shaping the Future. With the pandemic causing devastating spikes in cases and deaths around the world, now could never be a more prescient time to reconsider the human journey. In the next episode, I speak to the Pope's coordinator of the Sector on Ecology at the Vatican, Father Jostrom, about the pandemic, climate change, and how this is the year of Laudato Si, the Pope's encyclical on climate change. Dan, it's great to have the opportunity to speak to you today. Thank you very much. I just want to start by asking you, as oil prices fell during the pandemic, many environmentalists assumed we were seeing the collapse of oil. Can you talk about how you saw this and is it good for the transition to renewables? Yeah, and I think this is the, the primary point I'm trying to make with my book, Nick, is that, you know, there is a there is an unfortunate, I guess for environmentalists, there's an unfortunate truth that the world will be responsive to fossil fuels for a very, very long time, whether they like it or not. I mean, there's so much of the global economy economy that's wrapped up in fossil fuels, and not just with energy production, of course, with plastics and synthetics of all kinds, drugs and what have you. And then, of course, what I try to point out in the book is that there's a sort of evolution of energy where you don't cut yourself off from the last stage or even the last two stages or the last three stages that you build on top of what's already been built. So, uh, in fact, you're going to be forced to rely on of fossil fuels in some ways even more as you try to give more of the portfolio that is the demand portfolio of energy to solar and wind and, and other sustainable technologies. Okay, you've argued in the book for a market-based transition. Is that correct? You, you sort of say the markets are how we can transition right. to renewables. Right. So just to be clear, I know you just said that fossil fuels are going to be around for a while. Your position is very much about how do we get to a renewable energy right. system. So why do you see the markets as central to a rapid transition? This is also another thing that you know I have a difficulty with members of the left who see the markets as a tool of the the capitalist and the industrialist and and keeping the left down and and the common man down. And and in many ways it is, but it also is, you know, a capital allocation tool like no other in which, you know, it's easier to find a way towards renewables by using that allocation tool 
as opposed to trying to create a new one from scratch. And the example that I kind of used, which kind of makes some sense early on in the book, is with Iraq after the Americans went in in 2003 and, and basically took the entire infrastructure of, of the Iraqis and threw everybody out and tried to rebuild from scratch the Iraqi infrastructure. The problem with that was, first of all, that everybody who had a job inside the Iraqi government went and joined ISIS. The second part was that um, nobody who was brought in to try and make a, a working government and the working the infrastructure surrounding that government knew what the hell was going on. So they didn't know, you know, where the levers were, how the pipes work. And sure enough, you know, the law, for example, fell apart. The infrastructure for oil fell apart. The economy fell apart. And in fact, the Americans had a bigger problem trying to remake the wheel as opposed to at least leaving the infrastructure in place. And this is what I suggest here in energy. And you can, in fact, use the infrastructure to promote renewables and away from fossil fuels if you make the right changes and you make the right steps. And that's what I encourage all sides to kind of look at the infrastructure that's already in place to not only move us towards renewables, but do it more aggressively and, and quicker. I mean, that's the quickest way to do it with the infrastructure we already have in place. If I was to interpret what you're saying, so you're suggesting that we use the markets as a tool for going to scale. One of the things, if we look at emissions of 40 plus billion tons a year, and we talk about whether we're going to try and take those out of the atmosphere, we've got to reduce our emissions, all this kind of stuff. The whole conversation is around these, the scale that I don't think many people can actually comprehend. So what you're saying is that we've got this infrastructure of the markets that could help us take renewables to scale in the time we need to do it. Is that correct? Indeed. And not just with, for example, emissions, of course, you know, there's been a lot of talk about a global carbon tax or some sort of market-based system in order to uh, limit the amount of CO2. This is an obviously, you know, it's a no-brainer kind of move that, you know, everybody should embrace. It's not something I talk about a lot in the book because it's not my expertise, but what it what you can do is you can you bring the pricing mechanisms of the futures markets and other markets into the change that's going to have to happen from going from fossil fuels to renewables. In other words, to have in the same room, in the same infrastructure, pricing of both all of these alternative energy sources, as well as all these fossil fuel sources. And in fact, in some ways, look to use policy to manipulate the prices of both to make one more competitive than the other over time. So for example, one of my basic theories of the book is that if you could make using the markets oil very expensive, for example, you would make renewables, at least relatively, very competitive. And it would drive a lot of capital, a lot of money towards renewable technologies in terms of development and integration into what is, you know, at least at this point, a pretty pathetic integration into at least the American and in the European economies as well. Okay, we'll come back to the oil prices in a moment. But global energy demand is rising. And how does this compare to global renewables growth? The problem has been, of course, that yes, global energy demand continues to rise. It's obviously had a major speed bump with the pandemic, and there will be a year or maybe a year and a half where global demand will not be on the rise. But as you get a vaccine and as you know the world gets back to normal, you will have, again, this kind of inexorable rise of demand for energy across the globe. And the bottom line is how it relates to renewables is really, really simple. When you have people, for example, even in the third world or even in developed nations, you will find that those who are demanding more energy will reach for what is the cheapest for obvious reasons. They do not bother with moral decision-making. For the most part, you're going to find that those that reach for the next 10 billion BTUs are going to take whatever is the cheapest to add to the portfolio they already have. 
And in all cases right now, and for the last several years, and last six, which is really where the book kind of concentrates, that's been unfortunately with fossil fuels. And we have to change that so that we can force those that have an increasing demand for energy to want to reach for solar and wind power, as opposed to easy, for example, oil, which is relegated into the 30 and $40 a barrel area. Okay. And you say that the fossil fuel companies could also be used as major players in this transition. There's a British group called the Carbon Tracker who pointed out that incumbents generally don't do well when it comes to transitions. A good example is Kodak when we moved from film to digital, you know, they went bust. Do you really think that these guys can do this? Do you think there may be other more agile, different types of tech companies that are leading this? Well, look, there's indications that not a few, there's quite quite a few that the oil companies have been working towards a transition, understanding the inevitability of a transition, and been positioning themselves for a transition, and have been doing it at an accelerating basis. Over the course of the last several years, they kind of see the writing on the wall. That's number one. Number two, there are ways that we can even incentivize them further to retire some of their oil assets and promote the development of sustainable assets. And one way to do that that I suggest in the book is very simply with the rebates that have been given in the U.S. government, still about $8 billion a year and remove them completely, but then give them back to the energy companies with the proviso that they have to prove that those $8 billion in subsidies will be used to promote and develop sustainable energy technologies. And I think that's one way to incentivize them going forward. I also do a little bit of an economic analysis of how there is a better profit to be made if you can adjust the prices of both oil and renewable energy and electricity, for example, so that oil companies will be more profitable if they make less oil, sell less oil, and in fact, sell more of the renewable uh, technologies that we're talking about. So there is a way in using the markets to incentivize the oil industry and the, the oil and gas industry to be a very, very big part and a key part of this transition if you do the right things. You also mentioned in the book about the demand for oil, I think from 2014, is going up. And if you want to increase the price to make it less unattractive, how would you do that? How do you make oil less attractive and, and the alternatives more attractive? Right. And the first thing to understand and what I go through the book in pretty big detail is that oil naturally should be going up in price all the time. To put it very simply, when you drill a well, you go to the place where you can get it the most cheaply. That well gets emptied. All those cheap wells get emptied and you have to go someplace where it's more expensive to get the oil out of the ground. So inexorably, oil prices should go up. What has stopped it from going up has been uh, you know, a shale explosion, particularly here in the United States, over the course of the last five years. And we've got to short circuit that because that's been the most outrageously mismanaged use of sovereign resources, perhaps in the history of man. I mean, you wonder how a U.S. oil industry could take a natural resource supply that was unknown previously, was the envy of the world, and promised so much in terms of economic activity and jobs and shareholder returns, and managed to deliver none of those, and in fact, managed instead to bankrupt themselves in 10 years. So there has to be a little more uh, regulation, a little more uh, from the federal government in order to make sure that these sovereign natural resources that we have here in the United States aren't being just, to put it bluntly, pissed away, you know, without any uh, consideration of the future from an economic point of view and from an environmental point of view. Okay. And the other thing you mentioned about controlling the markets, you imply that this is possible. Is that correct? <laughs> if I read that correctly? Yeah. Because that sounded you know, really dangerous to me. 
Well, you know, controlling the markets is a, is a way to put it. I don't really, I don't really call it that. I think that, you know, you put guidelines, you put gutters like on a bowling alley and you ensure that, first of all, that there are reasons for oil to follow its natural course upward, number one. And number two, when things go really off kilter one way or the other, you don't allow the oil price at least to very rapidly go in one direction or the other. For example, in 2008, for example, we saw oil prices go from $140 a barrel to $32 a barrel in less than six months. That's not good. In 2014, we saw oil prices go from around $88 or $89 a barrel to $30 a barrel. That's no good. For the sake of stability in the energy markets to understand, you know, so that, that companies and consumers can get a grip on, you know, what their needs will be in energy going forward and for a long term, what you need is not only a rising price of oil, but you need a stably rising price of oil. You cannot let it go from $50 to $110 in six months and expect that to drive a stable kind of transition from fossil fuels over to renewables. In the same way, you can't expect oil to go from $100 to $30 in six months and also expect it not to impact what needs to be a steady transition to renewables. So in all ways, what I'm really talking about are certain gutters to a bowling alley where oil prices can be kept within what is a long-term sustainable uptrend, which is its natural path anyway. I suppose many people will be saying, well, you know, in many, let's say, European countries, for example, policymakers are saying, oh, we're going to outlaw combustion engines in X city and Y city, and we're going to accelerate the transition to electric vehicles. But the countries around the world and the developing countries are probably going to be thinking, well, if this is cheaper, then we're going to keep using oil. Is, is this part of why you're saying that cheap oil prices are not good in general? Absolutely. I mean, you know, in terms of demand, or at least demand increases over the course of the last 10 years, and certainly going forward the next 10 or 20 years, it's not coming from Europe, and it's not coming from the United States. The United States is actually dropping in terms of its demand profile. Europe is slowly dropping its demand profile for energy. All the demand increases over the next 15, 20 years are coming from the Middle East, from Africa, from the developing world. And without question, you know, they're not going to listen to, you know, moral arguments about the planet when, you know, their people are screaming for 20% a year rise in energy demand. And they're going to reach for what's cheap. So yes, from a global standpoint, we have to make a global change in the way that we price oil and natural gas and how we see it around the world and, and how it's priced around the world. Okay, and just one point to end on. I think it'd be good to hear how you would foresee this all taking place in a, maybe a one, two, three decade scenario. Have you thought about that? Well, yeah, my last chapter gives some suggestions. And the truth is, you know, I didn't write the book specifically for policy change because, you know, I'm not a policy wonk. But I did try and give some suggestions in how that might be done. The one I gave you already, and you know, for subsidies, number one. Two, I, you know, I tried to suggest maybe using the USSPR as a buyer of last resort to keep prices steady, both on the upside and on the downside. There is a lot to be said for the truth that, for example, here in the United States, a lot of money from the federal government has been used to keep the stock market prompt, for example, in all ways when the economic data would seem to tell you that the prices we see in the stock market don't really reflect the reality of the economy. And a lot of that money in some ways went towards failing or soon to fail or otherwise, you know, oil companies who were in financial distress. And my advice to the United States is instead of, you know, buying bad bonds from oil companies, maybe they could buy oil. That's something that actually 
will have value at a later time. You're not sure when, but it's sort of like all other commodities. Sooner or later, you know, it's, it's worth something. Whereas there are a lot of these bonds that are on the Federal Reserve balance sheet right now that I wouldn't give eight cents for, and I don't think the Feds would give eight cents for either. So there are ways to, you might use the word manipulate, but in some ways, you know, it's really a policy that's already in place here in the United States to support U.S. business. And there's nothing that would support oil business more than a higher price, because that's ultimately their biggest problem right now in terms of survival. It's that oil prices are depressed and uh, the cash flow that they're getting is not enough to service the debt that they have. Okay. You said early on in the book that you were inspired to write it by a Trump tweet, which was just so offensive. You thought, right, I've got to do something here. Now, all being well, Joe Biden will be your next president. And we're going to see a major expansion of discussion, at least, around this topic. Do you see that what you've laid out is something that the incoming administration could take something from in terms of a United States strategy? Oh, I certainly hope so. I mean, this was my bucket list book, and it was dependent upon Joe Biden winning the election in some ways when I started writing it. I mean, it's, it becomes a moot point if he doesn't win the election. And for those in Europe who look on the United States and don't really understand what's going on, let me tell you this. We just had a very contentious election, as you may know. And 50% of clearly, uh, you know, 40 or 45% of the U.S. voting public starts to wet their pants when they hear Green New Deal. Now, for whatever reason, whether it's right, wrong, or sideways. So my thought is that there have to be policies that make allowances for those who believe that you cannot discount the fossil fuel industry in the United States. You cannot discount those that work in the fossil fuel industry in the United States. You can't discount the revenue that it brings to the states. You can't discount the uh, shareholders that hold money inside of these. And in fact, much of what I try and lay out in the book doesn't do that. In fact, all of those to maintain their viability and while still giving directives that will move us towards renewables much more quickly than we have in the past. So, you know, I've done my best to try and split the middle on uh, what is a practical solution set here in the United States and going forward. So I hope they'll be discussing it. I certainly do. That's why I wrote it. Well, Dan, that's an excellent place to finish so thank you very much i'm going to put a link to the book in the notes below yeah we we need to accelerate the transition so counterintuitive <laughs> everything about climate seems to be counterintuitive but actually get somewhere so let's i mean see. i you know nick i've been i've been in this business a long time i've been watching and i'm i'm, I'm i've got a unique spot because i'm very much on the left but I work in an industry that's very much on the right. And so I see the perspectives on both sides and I see the, uh, the mistakes on both sides and I see where they have a point on both sides. And so I think I'm uniquely positioned to kind of get everybody in the room, tell off the, where they've gotten everything wrong and pat them on the back for everywhere they've gotten right and maybe suggest some places where they can meet in the middle. So that was the point of the book. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to speaking to you again. I appreciate it, Nick. Thanks, thanks for this.